3: This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. It's award season, and we're re-listening to some of our interviews with Oscar winners. Here's Spike Lee. He won his first competitive Oscar last year for the screenplay of Black Klansman. This was 30 years after Do the Right Thing.
1: Everybody, welcome Alec Baldwin and Spike Lee.
3: I've been trying to get Spike Lee on this program for a long time. Finally, we made it happen in front of a live audience at this year's Tribeca Film Festival. The deal was we would each engage the other in a discussion about one of our favorite movies of all time. Just listing Spike Lee's films should be enough to establish his place as one of the deans of American moviemaking. Do the Right Thing, Malcolm X, Jungle Fever, She's Gotta Have It, they defined what it means to be black in America and help Spike smash through Hollywood's racial glass ceiling. And he's still at it with this year's festival favorite, Black Klansman, in which I make an appearance alongside stars John David Washington and Adam Driver. And now, our conversation at Spring Studios in New York as part of the Tribeca Film Festival. We didn't rehearse any of this. Mm-hmm. First of all, let me just explain to you what a pain in the ass it is to get him on the phone. It is so painful. Now let's You tell call a true him story. and call him and text him and text him. Let's tell a and true story. And then he calls story. you really sunny. He calls you back like six weeks ago. He's like, what's up? If, if, I see, if, hey. if I
4: see a number on my phone, I don't know the number, I don't pick up. And he has four numbers. <laughs> now tell me, I mean...
3: What I want to know first is, because I think this helps, you know, these kinds of origins help us understand this kind of film appreciation. What was movie going in your life when you were young, when you were a child? Tell us where you grew up, what kind of household you grew up in, Mm -hmm. and what was the whole TV movie
4: dynamic in terms of your consumption of that kind of stuff when you were a child? I I never knew that you could even make a film growing up. I grew up in the Republic of Brooklyn. We were the first black family to move into Cobble Hill, which is a predominantly Italian American neighborhood because Cobble Hill is right by the docks and the docks were Italian American. And uh, we got called nigger a couple of times first week, but once my friend saw there weren't a hundred other black families moving in behind me, then we were just cool after that. So it was after that. And then we, my mother. Decide we got to stop paying rent. So we bought a brownstone on Fort Greene for $45,000. They go for $4 million now. What, what year was that? 68.
3: My father grew up in Fort Greene on St. James Place in Fulton Street. Yeah. yeah.
4: So, uh... I remember you now. <laughs>
3: <laughs> you were a pain in the ass then, too. <laughs> I couldn't get you on the phone back in 68,
4: either. <laughs> You weren't in for green in '68 because white flight had happened by then. People moved to Long Island. <laughs> but uh,
0: what's the so, first movie
4: you saw on the big screen? The the first movie I can remember, my mother took me to see. Real, really quick. My father hated movies, but he loved sports. I got my love for sports from my father. My mother loves movies, but my, since my father hated movies, I was my mother's movie date. The first film I can remember, my, mother t- my late mother take me. to, we, She took me for Easter Sunday. Ray's Music Hall. We saw Bye Bye Birdie. It cracks me up. And here's the thing, though, that film impacted me so much I even know it. The opening credit sequence from Do the Right Thing, Rosie Perez dancing, that came from Bye Bye Birdie. Really? With Anne Margaret. That's where it came from, and I must—I must have I been like seven, eight years old. But it just came out of nowhere.
3: Did, did I mean this is a cliche, I guess, but did that do something to you? The first time you saw a movie on a big screen, did you sit there and go, "Wow"?
4: Yeah, but I didn't want them. I—it's I, not like it, at that moment I you went weren't hit movies, by lightning. But it was not. I, who 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 makes a movie? Right. So. Growing up, I wanted to play second base for New York Mets, but genetics conspired against that happening. That's where I changed over to the Yankees. But anyway. I wanted to be a porn star, but genetics conspired against that too.
0: <laughs> no, was...
4: So I not grew up wanting to be a filmmaker, but uh, I remember my mother taking me to see uh, Mean Streets. Wow. When Bonnie and Clyde came out I said, "Can I go?" She said, "I'm not taking you." I went to see Brian Clyde. I had nightmares for two weeks because I, I mean, up to that point, there was never violence shown like that, yeah. and that, that shook me for two weeks. That was groundbreaking, right, Arthur Penn? But the reason why I chose *On the Warfront*, besides it's one of the greatest films ever, is because I became very friendly with Bud Schilberg. The great, great Bud Show. Where did you first meet him and where? I called him up. You know, back then, you call people up. I called Stanley dining up. <laughs> I called Kazan up. You get people on the phone. People don't realize how much that happens in this business. And, True. you know, I was a young filmmaker, so, you know, and, and in fact, I called Billy Wilder up. He said, Come on over. You and Cameron Crowe. And anytime yeah. I had, and go, I had people. I got my posters too. So I got my posters, you know, this, the, the, the sign. But, Bo, but Bud and I, we worked on a script together. And, and Bud lived to be 94 or 5. But when he was 90, we, we wrote a, a script together called "A Us Joe Lewis about this relationship between Joe Lewis and Max Schmellen. And his, in, the, in the last two years of life, he would call me every week and say, Spike, did you get the money yet? Did you get the money yet? Because I had promised him that I was going to make this film before he passed. So I'm going to make that promise happen. But we just couldn't get together. But it's amazing. It's an epic it has Hitler, Goebbels, FDR, Eleanor Roosevelt, Lena Horne, Joe Lewis, Max Mellon, Sugar Ray Robinson. I mean, it's, it's uh let me get it done one day, and I miss them
3: now. When you, when you talk about it, and the same as in my life, where I would watch movies, and I thought that movie stars were harvested on another planet and they flew them down here or something. You know, I, I, the idea that mm-hmm. myself or anybody like me could get into the movie business was just absurd. You know, to me. And when did that change for you? Meaning, when did movie making
4: become? a direction that you wanted to set sail in? Oh, when I went to college. I went to Morehouse College in Atlanta, Georgia. And my first two years, the house. My first two years, I was a C plus D minus student. What was your major? I didn't have a major at that point. And so before second semester ended, the end of my sophomore year, it was time to go back to New York, but some the summer, my advisor told me I had to choose a major when I come back in the fall. And I said, why? And my advisor said, because you have exhausted all your electives. <laughs> so I came back to New York, and it was a summer, it was the infamous summer 1977. The Yankees won the World Series, the first summer of disco. The heat was horrible. Therefore, you had the, the blackout. And you had David Berkowitz. Right, I was going to say. Son of Sam. So it's amazing. Many years later, I I, I wrote the corollary script with uh, Michael Creole and Victor Colocchio called uh, uh, Summer Sam. But anyway, New York City was broke that summer. There's a famous Daily News front page. Forward to New York, drop dead. There you go. You, up to that point, If you had your workers permit, you'd get a job doing something. But there were no jobs in New York City. And I I didn't want to spend the whole summer playing stratomatic baseball on my stoop. So I have a, a, still my friend today, her name is Evyetta Johnston. She was very smart. She, if you go to Stuyvesant, you had to be smart. The test for New York City was Brooklyn Tech, Science, and Stuyvesant. Brooklyn Tech was down the block from me, here. Science and stuff. She got in the. I mean, she was smart. So one day, and, and I swear, in my mother's grave. This, this was not a mistake. I was sitting on my stoop, nothing to do, and the spirit told me go see Vieta. So I went to her house. She lived at University Towers on on uh, Waverly, no, Willoughby, and uh, Willoughby, Willoughby and Ashland, cross street from LIU. So. She's studying, I mean, she's studying the whole summer. And so there's a box in the corner of the room. And I said, what's that? She said, that's a Super 8 camera. You can have it. <laughs> I said, what's the other box? She said, that's the stupid. That's the cartridge of the Super 8 that goes into the thing. She says, you can have it. I'm going to be a doctor, so I don't need this. She is a doctor now. She went to Princeton undergrad and went to Harvard Med School. So... That was not a mistake for me to go to his house that day.
3: So you can now say I had, that
4: again. So now <laughs> I have so something to do. So I spent the whole summer not trying to be a filmmaker, but just shooting stuff. So I shot the blackout. It was the first summer disco. So every weekend there was a block party, and DJs would hook them there, turntables, and speakers to the thing. And then uh, it was just a crazy summer. So I came back to school. In the fall, and declared my major I was being be a mass communications major now Morehouse didn 't have that major, so I, so I took master cases across the street at Clark College. so you had Spelman, Morehouse Clark College, Atlanta University, and Morris Brown. These are all black institutions, really in the same area in Atlanta and there's a teacher there there's a professor his name was Dr. Herbeker Berger, still teaching there, and I told him I had this film. I just shot some footage, I don't know what to do with it. He said, you make a film with it. So mass communications quickly was film, TV, journalism, and broadcast. And he said, make a documentary, have to make a documentary of the film. The film ended up being called Last Horse in Brooklyn. I worked all semester on it. And then many times when, he had, he had the key to the film lab. And twice a week, he would stay extra so I could spend another four hours editing. And he wasn't getting paid for it either, extra. Why, why do you think he did that? He saw something I didn't see. Right. What and, did he see in you that you didn't see? I don't know. I never asked him. That teaches are so important. I mean, I think you're going to anybody giving you a, 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 a hand, pulling yes, you up. That, that's why teaching teach Mentoring now. you. That's why I teach
3: now. Now, explain that, by the way, because I mean, I don't want to just kiss your butt here all day, all night long, because that's very easy to do. No, I mean, listen, I'm, I'm going to get I don't want to get emotional here. But like in this business, there's just something. I mean, you look at people who are talented and you really it just it, it humbles you. It quiets you. You know, this man is one of the greatest movie makers of the last 50 or 75 years in this country. Thank you. Thank you. This man is one of the greatest filmmakers alive. Thank you. Ever. And so when you, that mentorship thing, you know, explain to people, which even was news to me up until recently. You don't guest teach. You're on the faculty. And you teach a course yes. every year for how many years now?
4: Going on 15. 15 years now he's Now I'm a tenured... Film professor. You're going to get a paycheck, man. (laughs) Fantastic. No, we get paid now, but the thing is that both of my children went to NYU. Yeah. So that tuition ain't no joke. (laughs) 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 But my mother was a teacher. My late mother, she taught at St. Anne's in Broken Heights on the legendary Southern Ballsville. My grandmother taught. My grandmother's Grandma was a slave, yet she graduated from Spelman. My mother, my mother graduated from Spelman. My grandmother graduated from Spelman. My father, and gran- my father and grandfather graduated from Warhouse. My father was a freshman. Dr. Martin Luther King was a senior. Martin Luther King III, and I were classmates, the class of 79. But my grandmother taught art for 50 years in Atlanta, Georgia. For 50 years, she never had one white student because of the Jim Crow laws in, 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 in the South, specifically in Atlanta. And for 50 years, white students missed on the great art teacher. And my mother, my grandmother, 50 years, saved their Social Security checks for grandchildren's education. So since I was the first grandchild, she put me through Morehouse and NYU. Just accumulation of Social Security checks over 50 years. And she gave me the seed money for my, my thesis film, Joe's Best Side Barbershop. We cut heads which one which Student Academy Ward, and a little bit of money for she's gonna have it, the first film. But but even more important than the money, and we gotta get, we gotta talk about the films. Even more important, and here's the well, thing though. I'll be the judge of that. You go ahead. All Keep right. going. Here's what I say. When I when I speak in public, I always say this: Parents kill more dreams than anybody. So specifically, if those dreams that their children have have to do with the arts, so I grew up in a very artistic family. So when I said when I told everybody I wanted to be a filmmaker, nobody said get the fuck out of here, you. you're crazy. You're no black filmmakers, you know. Melvin's not around anymore; I wasn't making films. Ozzie Davis, Oscar Show, Oscar Show been dead for many, many years. But I only got encouragement, and so often when a child or a young adult tells their parents you know what what are you going to major in poetry ballet dance photography whatever it is they're like now if their black parents it goes like this as long as your monkey has his black living in my house wearing my clothes eating my food we we didn't, we didn't take out a second mortgage at the house, and you, I mean they got some points, you know.
3: In my, in my house, that played out like this: I'm going to GW <laughs> to study political science. I go up to New York. Long story, but I go by audition for the acting program, I, and I, I get accepted. And I'm going to go to the NYU acting program. And I explained to my parents how it's actually going to cost less. For me to go to NYU, even though it's more expensive, school, because I requalify for all this New York state based loans and scholarships, mm-hmm. you know, region scholarship things right. that I forfeited when I went to Washington. So I call my family and and I say, I'm gonna leave GW. I'm not gonna go to law school, I'm gonna go to NYU and study acting. And my mother, I mean, she screamed like a ho- like 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 Jamie Lee Curtis in a horror movie. <laughs> she was like my mother was like,
0: Are you out of your mind?
3: she's screaming and I go no no I I go listen I go it's going to cost you guys less money and my father goes let's hear him out let's hear him out
4: (laughs) let's just hear him out
3: director Spike Lee he also teaches in the graduate film program at NYU and when we return we'll do some analysis on our chosen films A Place in the Sun and On the Waterfront
0: at purdueglobal.edu. Hey, guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh?
1: A Redwood Forest would be
2: cool. Ski slopes!
0: Wait! Did we just invent California?
2: Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.
3: I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Here's the Thing. Now, more of my conversation in front of a live audience at the Tribeca Film Festival with director Spike Lee. Your films obviously deal with a lot of themes of racial injustice and so forth and struggle. Are are
4: themes that are in your own films, are they in Waterfront as well? Yeah. I was on Anderson Cooper when this whole thing was happening with Kaepernick. And I watched on Waterfront again for the millionth time. And the stuff that Kaepernick was saying was the same stuff... That Marlon Brando was saying, "I want my rights," and you can see the mob was the NFL owners, because <laughs> you had, when you have the shape up, they had the things the guy was yeah. giving out, and here here's a motherfucker here, in the scene to get on the work, the guy, the steward, whatever, he has to give you like a coin. And so after Marlon Brando, Terry Malloy testifies against Lee J. Cobb. Yeah, Johnny you know, Friendly. Johnny Friendly. He, he says, "Fuck it, I'm going back to work." So he's standing there, and they're giving out a coin to everybody, and then there's nobody there, and there's some rummy, some bum, yeah. who's has his <laughs> hands yeah. over the fire. A fire. You want to work? And they, and they put in. And so I'm saying the NFL, these motherfuckers hire motherfucking quarterbacks who are horrible. So what they did to Terry Malloy, they're doing the to the Kaepernick. They were, I don't want to say the guy's name. The guy had retired. Chicago Bears quarterback. Go ahead, say his name. <laughs> he retired. They're all looking on, all looking on Google retired. right now. They took him out of retirement, gave him a $10 million contract. He was horrible. And Kaepernick still can't get a job. So it was amazing. I mean, but Schilberg was a visionary, and when I saw what they were doing the Terry Malloy, it was the same thing end that was doing to Kaepernick. I think that uh, you know,
3: there's a lot of legend and lore about that film, and you know, these stories of everybody's heard a million times about Brando doesn't do the off-camera for
4: uh Ron Steiger
3: car. and all that yeah. crap, and you know, all that stuff, which is not that important. Is the movie about? kazans mea culpa for you know ratting out. Un american you know, i'm hat. glad what i've done to you john friendly i'm gonna keep on doing it he says you know you know, that, that no apologies for that but for me it's like uh you know brando was someone who was a did you know him? brando you, yeah i met brando one time i was gonna do uh, uh i was in this wheel of my life where uh, C, you know cbs was going to pay people big money to do these mow's the old mow we were going to right. do uh, we did, i did streetcar on broadway which we wound up doing on uh a, uh a, 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 for tv no 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 you robbed uh, that but we do we do uh, streetcar on Broadway. we do it on tv which that was a waste of time but they paid everybody a lot of money but like why do it for tv when it's in in the movie uh his movie and so i go see him because they want to do cat on a hot tin roof mm. and they want him to play big daddy but they're not going to insure him long story short as i go to his house this is a true story i go to his house uh, up on Mulholland and I I go there to beg him to do catonauts and roof, uh, if they will ultimately insure him, which they wouldn't. And I mean, I'll do my, my, my tepid Brando impersonation. But I said, uh, I said, uh, uh, you know, I, 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 you know, one thing led to another. I had lunch with him for four hours and I said, uh, uh, you know, I did *Streetcar* on Broadway. Uh, uh, it was like six or seven years before. And he said, yeah, I, I, I heard about that from some friends of mine that you did that. Uh, I heard you were very good in it, yes. And I heard you were very funny. And I, I wish I had done more of that because it's a very funny part. And the character of Stanley is very funny. And I wish I'd found more of the humor in myself. And there's a pause and I went, but it worked out pretty well for you just to say it, wouldn't you say? <laughs> I mean, I mean, mean, it, it went okay, don't you think? It's for how it went over, you know, in the, for the public. And, uh, but it's, uh, yeah, I met him just that one time, and, uh, uh, but, but you see, he's interesting to me because there's a couple guys. I mean, I'm going to talk briefly about it from the actor's standpoint, which, yeah. I, uh, which I can't help, but, uh, you know, Pacino was obviously a big beacon for me, and there's those moments. You know, there's always a moment. Uh, you know, uh, John Mandolph was in the hospital, and, uh, Serpico's got the bullet hole in his face, mm-hmm. and, Uh, And John Mandel puts the gold shield on him, and he doesn't want the 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 gold shield to become a detective. And finally, he gets it and Bacino. Just erupts into this moment, this momentary sob, this gasp of agony for just a moment of his suffering. And I just thought to myself, this is why I want Al made me want to be an actor as much as anybody, as much as anybody. Bacino was the one uh, that made me want to be an actor. What's your favorite? He was one of them, you know. Yeah, Dog Day Serpico was one of my favorites. But, uh, and Brando, too, but Brando, of course, gets into that zone where he doesn't care. You know, he's a prodigy, and he puts all the pieces together when he's 24 years old. Brando did Streetcar on Broadway when he was 24. I did it when I was
4: 34. He, I, I never met him. You he, never did? Call me up 2 o'clock in the morning. And uh, I, I'm not going to do imitation, but he wanted me to do a film about uh, Native Americans. And I never heard from him after that. Well, he, he, and then I found later, he would call people late. But somebody got my number, and uh, I didn't believe it was him at first. But My favorite line he said to me
3: is I sit in his house, and I'm terrified of him. I'm terrified. I'm terrified. I meet people who are my peers, you know, and, and my generation of actors, and, and I admire some of them incredibly. But it's different when you meet Kirk Douglas or Gregory Peck, or some of these mm-hmm. guys I met. I mean, I was like, I literally pissed in my pants when I met Gregory Peck. And uh, uh, like almost literally. And, uh, um, and I'll never forget, I'm in Brando's house. And he said to me, he says, he says, you know, you and I are like two dogs that are sniffing each other. <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're sniffing me and I'm sniffing you. And, and he said, and oh, God, oh, God, I hate that. I hate that. He said, so you say whatever you want to say. And I'll say whatever I want to say. I mean, just really, he just didn't want anybody to play him. Mm. He hated that. You know what I mean? And it was it was a, it was an amazing day. I, half a day I spent with him. Now, um, so in Waterfront, one of the other things I love about this film is that is that you know Kazan, having directed in the theater, he knew that you had to set the table with every detail in terms of the acting and the performances. That if there was one weak link in the chain, I'm talking about Fred Gwynn. Herman I'm Munster. The, when I later went on to play Herman Munster with a small role. Lee J. Cobb in one of his greatest roles, one of the great, great, great actors in history. Lee J. Cobb, Steiger, great, great actor.
4: Uh, even, uh, race, even, even Marie Saint, her first. Even song.
3: Marie Saint, of course. I mean, the, the 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 acting is superlative from one end to the other in that cast. It's it's mind blowing. It's some, and and uh, two ton Tony Galento. You
4: know, it was Bud that got all those ex boxers in the film because he knew them.
3: Yeah, I mean, yeah. just
4: the, the the acting is breathtaking. But what also, what I what I
3: love is that. Uh, also, what I love is that it's so nothing on the screen really in terms of set design, in terms of costume. It's, it, it it literally is the closest I've ever seen to a motion picture that behaves like radio, where you mm-hmm. only focus on the ideas. You're not thrown by a lot of pizzazz and a lot of shots and a lot of... It's so straight ahead and so honest. You as a filmmaker, when you first f- saw the film, what did you think of it as a movie, how you put together a movie?
4: I loved it, and uh, I, I got to give love to Leonard Bernstein's score. Yeah. Um, amazing. And for me, it's one of, I know we got to get to your, your selection, but one, it has for one of the most amazing endings. Oh. Of the movie with the score and they brought in james wong hong the great cinematographer to be on the roller skates
3: now boris kaufman was the cinematographer but yeah, yeah, right. you say they brought in james wong hong i didn't know that
4: he did that shot wow that's amazing brando's pov oh, as oh, he's, oh, as oh, he's, he's yeah. walking towards uh the right, guy right and then you see everybody he goes and stumbles in everybody goes in behind him and then you see the gate closed and you see uh Malden. Yeah, Carl Malden, and even recently, Walk Out. I mean, that, that, and that's,
3: whew. A lot of great lines in that movie. But, uh, um I still quote Brando whenever my wife would say to me, uh, you know. She'd say to me, oh, you know, when are you going to take me to dinner? Or whatever the line was. And, you know, Brando's got that line in the, in the bar with the gun. Mm. And he says, it's none of your business.
4: <laughs> you have to say that line to people like that. That will not work in the Lee household, let me tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> it's none of your business. <laughs> Jeez, Why do you mind weird. your own business? Miss <laughs> Ty uh, Lewis Lee, uh-uh. No, I'm no, joking. no, no, no.
3: Now, now, uh, another person in this film who I thought was the, that I really was taken by was the art director. You know, when I do work, I do on TCM and things like that, where I get into these details. Uh, uh, Richard Day, who did the art direction on this film, was nominated. I think I, I don't have the statistics in front of me. He was nominated for like nine Academy Awards and won many Academy Awards for for, for a career that spanned from Dark Angel and Doddsworth. And Dead End in the '30s, and to How Green Was My Valley. Oh, I and love on that film,
4: dead, dead, dead End. That's my thing. Yeah, dead dead end Dead end, kids, end a great movie. And then, and then it goes
3: on to Streetcar and Waterfront in 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 the, in the '50s. I mean, this guy won Oscars over the arc of like a, a, a two decades, and uh, and of course Leonard Bernstein's score, which uh, you know the New York Philharmonic has a program that I'm the co-producer of called The Art of the Score, mm-hmm. which we play the music live to picture, particularly of films that have classical repertoire, with right. Kubrick being the uh, the ultimate example of that and showing films like... He Su- went to
4: science. T- say again? He went to Bronx science. Right, right, exactly, exactly.
3: Yeah. Uh, Kubrick, uh, you know, uh, 2001, which we're showing again for the second time next year, Barry, Lyndon, and so forth. But we've also played films where they just have lush, non-classical score although Bernstein's part of that world. And we showed Waterfront, the, and the Philharmonic played Waterfront you live. You know,
4: it is said, though, he didn't like the way he wrote more music than was put in. Oh, did he? Yeah, so he wasn't happy with the way to now turn out. we talk you, about Shelly Winters? You, you go, you go. I got Shelly a lot of Winters is, is amazing in A Place in the Sun. And when I saw her role automatically... All the man thought about her in Night of the Hunter. Mm-hmm. It's almost like the same, this tragic woman that just can't get it right and with the wrong guys, and, and she, ended up, she got murdered in both films. Yeah. Here's Cliff gleaming with his beauty, and she's gleaming with her beauty,
3: but the acting of Shelley Winters, her performance is unbelievable in this movie. She's incredible. But there are very few people, you can't shoot two people, this close in the famous kissing scene between Montgomery Clift and Elizabeth Taylor, you can't shoot two people that close and hold the camera that close for too long unless you have two perfect-looking people. And in this film, you have, the, you have the most beautiful man or one of them that ever lived in the history of the movies and the most beautiful woman. I mean, it's, it's like a cinematic like a confection, you know I mean? In, in terms of the, the delight you feel from watching these people, the scene when they meet and he's shooting pool at the party and she walks in. I mean, there's, there's, there's so much for the eye. There's so much beauty in this film I and mean, just flat out beauty between these two people. Be, and then beyond that is this horrible drama of what happens to uh, to him and to Shelley Winters. No spoiler alert here. But uh, it, it's, uh, I, this film, the first time I ever saw this film... I remember... You saw on a television? I, yeah, I mean, a lot of these films I saw on TV. Because when I was a kid... Channel 9, right? Th- there you go. <laughs> I mean, people... I mean, I always say the same tired thing all the time about this, but, you know, no HBO, no v- VCRs when I was a kid. It was Channel 11, Channel 5, and Channel uh, uh, 9 would make licensing agreements with a studio, probably remember, in some kind of a cycle.
4: Do you remember Chiller Theater?
3: Wait, th- th- uh, Chiller Ch- Theater. Ch- Chiller Theater. Yeah, okay, I'm gonna come out. Million dollar movie with the theme from uh, Gone with the Wind. Mm-hmm. So I see this movie on TV and I remember like, not even about sexuality, I don't think, but just kind of sitting there with my mouth open going, oh my God, you know, I think I'd probably kill Shelley Winters for Elizabeth Taylor too. You know?
4: <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> That's not a hard choice.
3: <laughs> but, that, but that movie doesn't work. I mean, here you've got the guy, they both play, the, I mean, Elizabeth Taylor was a breathtaking actress, and, and, and Clift was a, was, a, was
4: a brilliant actor. And then you see the juxtaposition between uh, Shelley Winters, you know, a low, lower class, and, you know, it's a, that film's really about classism. Even though Montgomery is uh, a Eastman, he's, like, not really part yeah. of the, the real family. So he's trying to get up the ladder, too. I have to take advantage of you being here for this kind of thing. Now, what do
3: you do when you direct a film... Because they always say that the directors, then and now, uh, it's always been the same, that they cast well, you, you try your best to get who you want for the role, you have a dream right. cast, and you try to get them in terms of their availability and their, uh, their, 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 their desire to be in the film, and can you afford them, and so all those things come together, which I want you to speak about for people to understand what an extraordinarily difficult thing that is to do. Meaning you, you're you going to make a film. Spike Lee is going to make a film. And you can have anybody in your film. People are begging to work with you. And sometimes you don't get who you want in the film. True?
4: Well, since we are here at the Tribeca Film Festival, the role of Sal, I offered to Mr. De Niro. And He wanted to do it. That son of a bitch. <laughs> no, I think it... Danny Ellick, he got nominated. And and I think that, which I mean, I I love Bob, and I want him in my film. But De Niro might have tilted. It was meant to be a ensemble piece. Do the right thing. I mean, you had Totoro. I mean, everybody was in it, but no one was really. Richard Edson. Richard Edson. The great Ruby D, Ozzie Davis. You. No, but Sam, Sam, Samuel Jackson. He was Sam back then. Giancarlo. John Carlos Esposito. Rosie Perez, that's her first film. It's Martin Lawrence's first film. Robin Harris's first film. The late Robin Harris. So, it's been my experience. Things happen for the most part the way it should be because that's not the only time where I wanted someone and I didn't get them. And it turned out for the best because I got somebody who just fit better. So, it, yeah. and it also like so it's like a sports team, you know. I remember one year the Lakers had like five All Stars starting, they were terrible because there was no chem- there was no chemistry, and everybody's going to be starting. star. Everybody can't be like just needs to come together it's as a whole.
3: It's interesting because you hear
4: that. Across the board. You have an
3: ensemble of people. And if you change one little thing, it would upset the whole off, movie. Off, you know, off so the rail. Now, now, without naming names, because one of my goals isn't to you know, embarrass anybody, but when you make films as a, as a director, and your films are dramas, the they're, 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 acting is at the fore. You don't do action films and space movies and all this other crap. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. Um,
0: <laughs> um,
3: what I meant was...
0: Uh, <laughs>
3: Because we love space movies, let's face it. Great. Some space movies. Are great. But, but when you're directing, what is directing performance for you now? Because, like, you bring these people in, and you bring people who are, are going to play the role, and you, you assume they're pretty good to go. Mm-hmm. But what happens when it's not working? How involved? Are you involved in, like, walking up to people and taking them aside and going, hey, man, this is what I
4: need in this scene? Yeah, but you can't. That has to be done, you know, in a whisper. If you do that, I felt, you're going to lose the actor. Even if you take them aside and do it? No, I'm saying it has to be done exactly. Privately. private. Exactly.
3: I agree with you. All notes should be private.
4: You know, so it, you really, here's the thing though you try to head that stuff off in rehearsal. You can't be on on, on, the, on the day while you're shooting. you know 100 people, you know, crew members, and you're discussing the character and the arc, all that stuff. That stuff has to be worked out in rehearsal. But sometimes, whether I'm having a bad, they're acting having a bad day, things that happen, you're just trying to go through it. But, I make sure that at the end, when we're done, that we talk. So you gotta get, you gotta work that shit out so it's squashed, right. done with, and you could continue in good spirits. I'm reminded of my dear, dear friend
3: who passed away, Marvin Worth. Mm-hmm. You know, Mar- Marvin, right, right. Malcolm X. Give me an example, or maybe he's one, producers who actually contribute and help you make the movie you want to make?
4: Well, Marvin bought the rights to the autobiography of Malcolm X, as told by Alex Haley, I mean, really, really many years ago. And he'd been trying to make it. Lumet, a whole bunch of people. One time, Richard Pryor was supposed to play him. And... He, he said he sent me letters saying you want to be involved in this film. So I never, heard, I never got the letters. So then I was reading in the papers that Denzel Washington was going to play Malcolm X. He had already done the play of Broadway, When Chickens Come, when Chickens Come Home the Roost. And the director was going to be Norman Jewison. And I said to myself, self, hold the fuck up. And, and Norman, great director in the heat of the night. I mean, he's done many, many fine films. And I just began to talk about it a little bit. And then Marvin Worth called me and said, Spike, stop talking. Let's have you and Norman sit down. And so we, we met. I mean, this is not a new story. It's old. And uh, Norman wanted to know why I wanted to do it. And I told him, and he gracefully said okay. He didn't have to do that. He had the gig. He was the director. He was the one that Marvin Worth chose and also Warner Brothers. So I've always had big respect for Mr. Jewison because he could have said, fuck you, Spike. I don't care who you are. I'm directing this film. But there are producers. I, want, I, mean, this is, I guess what my question is,
3: because a lot of people, that, that's an intangible for a lot of people, what producers do, beyond, as they say, bringing a vital element to the table, the script, the star, the money from the studio. They've got the juice with the studio, what have you. But there are producers who have actually have, they've helped you make your films. They've, they've, they've contributed oh, to make your films.
4: Marvin, film. I, I, there's no way possible I've been involved. I have directed Malcolm X without the late, great Marvin Worth. I went to a screening. Marvin invited me to a
3: screening. Uh, at the Academy in, uh, uh, not the DJ but the Academy, you know, one of the great, great screening rooms in all of Los Angeles, which mm-hmm. is saying a lot. And then uh, we went to that uh, screening of Malcolm X there and uh, I got to say, it's one of your greatest films. That's a great, great film, Malcolm X. It's well, a great,
4: great film. you did a great job. All that goes to Mr. Denzel Washington. I know we're talking about mm-hmm. other films. I have to just say this real quick because tomorrow I'm going to see Denzel Washington. They had the opening of uh, the Iceman coming. Iceman coming. 4.30 curtain call. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a nine-hour play, right? Yeah. Not like that a, long. Right. But people ask me all the time, you know, we, uh, Denzel, we did Mo better. Malcolm X, he got game inside, man. So it's been a minute. But Denzel, people ask me about his performance. He prepared a year before. He told his agent... Don't give me any more work. Learn to pray in Arabic, speak in Arabic, learn to read the Quran, cut out pork, cut out alcohol. Because he under, Denzel understands that just sounding like somebody or looking like, it, it, that's just surface. And, he's, and he knew that if he did the job that needed to be done, that Malcolm's spirit will come into him. I put my hand on a stack of Bibles. There was a scene. All the speeches in the film were Malcolm's words. And there was one speech. I mean, he was killing it. And I'm looking at him. I got the monitor here. I'm looking at Ernest right here. My great cinematographer, Ernest Dickerson. So I see that the scene, I'm looking at the sides, and the scene's about to end. So I'm ready to call cut, and he keeps going. We were shooting film, and he went on for another two minutes. And finally, Ernest said, Spike, we ran out. So I woke up to Den- Denzel. He's almost like in a daze. I said, D, what was that? I said, what are you doing? He said, Spike, I don't know. He said, I can't tell you what I just said. That shit can't happen if you don't prepare for it. He worked a year. Yeah, he was ready. and And, and Ask anybody was on the set that day, we thought we saw
3: Malcolm in front of us. You know, you know what I love about that film also? It's tough sometimes if you play, the, if, if the film calls for an actress, a woman, to play that role of the wife, of the, uh, of the you know, it's yeah. a supporting role. Wow. And uh, uh, what I love was I thought if Angela Bassett was my wife, oh. there's nothing I couldn't do either. You know what I mean? Angela she Bass- such an amazing Bassett, woman. she brought it. Oh, she was so wonderful. Angela yeah. Bassett is such a great actress. Right. And she's so wonderful in that film. So I understand that we're going to take uh, some
4: questions. Yo, what's up, Spike? My name is Chris. I'm from Virginia. And I just wanted to ask you what you think of Black Panther? My brother. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen it four times. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I look at the world now differently before Black Panther and after Black Panther. That that should change everything, especially for people of color.
3: Now, wait a second. Uh, I I mean, I I think in these times, in these modern times where we're trying to all be more sensitive and more inclusive, don't you want to know what I thought of Black Panther? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, do you want to ask me? Go ahead.
2: Oh, no. Go ahead. I was actually going to
4: ask you about Infinity Wars. Yeah. (laughs) My brother. <laughs> you bought the catnip, so you better sit down. We're, 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 give us the next
3: question. Next question. We're gonna go. Hi, clean.
1: Spike. Can Hello. you tell us a little bit about your new movie, The Black Klansman, and what that's based on?
4: The Black Klansman is based on the book. My man here Is in it. Ron Stallworth was the first African American policeman in Colorado Springs. He ended up infiltrating the Klan. He's reading the paper, and the Klan put an ad in the paper when we need new members. So Ron Stallworth thinks as a joke, you know, it's a goof. So he calls up, and thinking as a joke, he leaves. They don't pick up his voicemail, so he leaves his real name and phone number. And the Klan calls back. And said, we want you to come down for an interview. So since he's an African-American, he can't really show up for the interview. So he has to send my man, is that a Boston Red Sox hat there? Thank you. Row 7, seat
0: 12.
4: <laughs> Row 7, seat 12. That B. Oh, boy. So he has to get A white police officer play him. That's Adam Driver. And so, we're in official competition at Cannes, and it opens August 10th, so check it out. And who plays the lead? The lead is played by John David Washington, Denzel's eldest son. Denzel's son. You might have seen him in Ballers. We have time for one more, one
3: more.
1: Um, In the scope of all of your projects, what is the work that has been most transformative and what is the legacy that you hope to leave?
3: She was actually looking at you. (laughs) She pretended it was for both of us. Uh, But she was looking right at you when she said that.
4: It's okay. It's okay. I would say uh, I did a documentary called Four Little Girls which is about the bombing of the 1963 Birmingham Church, the Sixth Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, full of girls were killed. Jago Hoover and the the FBI knew who did it a week after. One of the guys' name was Dynamite Bob. His nickname was Dynamite Bob. And for many years, the case was cold. And before the film opened at the Film Forum, Karen Cooper... And a couple of days before the open, the FBI called me. And they said, we want to see the film. The day after the film opened, they reopened that case. After many, many years, they went to trial. and Those motherfuckers died in prison. True story. They, they, they killed, murdered those four little girls and just went about their lives. You know? And they died. I think, I don't know how many of those One or two, but they died in prison.
3: Well, I know mean, this is going to sound corny and sound stupid. When I was on my phone, by the way, a moment ago, trying to look up something about him, and my wife, who's here, texted me and said, put your phone down. <laughs> she literally texted me she wrote enough with the phone (laughs) my legacy is not really that much about honestly I don't really think about the work I do that much it comes and goes it's sandcastles you know what I mean the ocean comes it's the moments you have with people I'm doing the edge with Tony Hopkins and he and I would have lunch together and we would do dueling Richard Burton impersonations together over lunch and I'll never forget that to the day I die I wanted to work with him, and he called me recently. I had me come and do a movie with him. And it was it was really, I mean, it was. Uh, we did one day. I shot this little thing. I won't give it away. But what a great honor it was to get good. Uh, it was Ed, my honor. It was Ed, Ed was Norton. I just did a movie with Ed Norton. Ed directed this wonderful movie, Motherless Brooklyn. I'm in this crowd with people I worship, you know, uh, uh, Cherry Jones and Cannavale and uh, 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 Willem Defoe. I'm on the set with them, going, oh, man, this is what it's all about. You know, to me, it's who you work with. I got to do Good Shepherd with Bob. De Niro would walk up to me and uh, Matt Damon, and he would talk to me. And literally, after like 30 seconds, I, would, I mean, I, I couldn't hear him. I went deaf. All the movies start screening in my head. And he'd talk to me, give me the direction. I'd look at him, i go, I'm sorry, could you repeat that? I wasn't listening to a word you said just now. And he'd look at me and go, you're very good, Alec. You're very good. But to be with those people to be with them. And with that in mind, would you all please join me in thanking our guest, one of the greatest movie makers in history. Thank you.
4: Thank Thank my man, Spike Lee. Thank you, thank you.
3: Spike Lee's Black Klansman will be in theaters August 10th. This is Alec Baldwin, and you're listening
4: to Here's the Thing.